Here's Tom Gimble, founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. The LaSalle Network.com is the website. Welcome back, Tom. How have you been? I've been great. I've never been to I've never been to, to outskirts of, of England, but I've been to London and I've seen a show there, and you're gonna love it. Uh, I've been to London before and I was surprised how much I liked it. I thought it was gonna be this grimy, crowded city. Um, it was remarkably international, and it's crowded, but it's bustling. I, I was thoroughly entertained by it. You too, huh? Yeah. I, I see. I, I would go back in a second. Actually, I think I'm going to go back to the Bears game. <laughs> Kill two birds with one stone. Seriously? Are you going to do that? Yeah, I went to the last one in 2019 there, and I didn't spend enough. I've been there probably three, three or four times. I, I didn't spend enough time there, so I'm going to go to the Bears game, I think, in the fall. Um and go for a little bit longer and kind of explore a little bit more. Did you go to the British Museum of Natural History? I did not. I want, There's so many museums I want to go to, John. It's crazy over there. Yeah, that's, that's on my list. Um, I think it's interesting. If you work from home, which regular listeners to this show may know you don't think you should be doing all of the time, you are going to find it more difficult to get a promotion, right? Yep. Okay, that wraps it up. That's Tom Gimbel. He's from the OSL Network. I think what the statistics are showing is that as companies are sitting here looking at 2024, the unknown of the economy, we have all this talk and chatter and white noise about bumpy landings and soft landings and the interest rates are high and, and unemployment maybe going up and all these things. It comes down to... What do you want? Where's your your vision for your own career? And at the end of the day, if somebody has to push bet their career on on a on a, a subordinate, that they want to have some eyes and ears on those people and what's being done and what's being said. And out of sight truly is out of mind. Remember, John, cliches are cliches for a reason, and usually it's because a lot of them are true. And out of sight is out of mind sometimes. And it's not saying for everybody, and I'm sure there's somebody texting in right now that I'm an idiot. I get it. But we're talking about the majority, not the, not the minority, the majority of people that need to have eyes on them to, to see what they're doing. And uh, no one's going to be a bigger advocate for you than you. And it's a lot easier to be that advocate for yourself if you're around your bosses. Here's a line from the Wall Street Journal. Nearly 90% of chief executives who were surveyed said that when it comes to favorable assignments, raises, or promotions, they're more likely to reward employees who make an effort to come to the office. In the online survey, 1,325 CEOs of large company in 11 countries conducted last year, almost two-thirds of the respondents said they expect most employees will be working in offices full-time in another three years. Full-time in another three years. That's an international survey. I think that first number is more telling, though, isn't it? 90% of the CEOs say, I'm more likely to give the promotion or the raise to somebody who is making an effort to come into the office. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a sense of somebody's dedicated and somebody's focused. Does it mean they're not working if they're from, not, if they're from home? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that when you when you see something every single day, it's top of mind. So if I have to give a big project to somebody and I see somebody hustling, if they're the ones that pop into my office and those are the conversations, you're more inclined to do that. And I would say that if you're working remote, you've got to figure out creative ways to, to have that dialogue with people. 
and and how you're going to stand out more from the crowd. It's just not an even playing field if you're not in the office. Right. But that's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's not an even playing field if you're not in the office, which is not to say that you aren't being as productive or valuable, that you're not working as hard, but it's harder to demonstrate that maybe because it's out of sight, out of mind. You and I have, you and I have had the version of this conversation many times where, um, it, where the at-home employee may be more productive or putting in more contact hours with the task than the employee who's driving to and from work? Maybe. You don't know. And, and we get into to, to a, a situation of, of what the tasks are and what the responsibilities are. And you, you don't know if you're not having the side conversations, John. And I think that that is the, the aspect. Now, the superstar, and I think that the key thing is this. You've got to eliminate the superstars from the dialogue. The people who are great, remote or on site, they're always going to be great, and the bosses will always know who they are. That's just a fact. There's been people who have been remote salespeople or remote developers for decades. This is not a new concept, okay? What's a new concept is in mass people working remotely. And what ends up showing and what the survey shows is that eliminating the superstars, the majority of the rank and file – do better if they're in the office, period. Well, they got a better chance of getting the raise or promotion, that's for sure. And I suppose both of those things can be true. Tom Gimbel is the founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. Wall Street Journal says as much, and Tommy does as well. I just called you Tommy, by the way. Are you comfortable with that? Uh, I've been, my mom's been calling me Tommy since I could, the first time remembering her say my name. <laughs> it's good to hear you. Thanks for your help today, Tom. Yep. Talk to you next week, John. Jessica Smart, president and CEO at Clear Brook. What's what? Uh, I know a little bit about what you all do, although I got the name of the business wrong or the agency. <laughs> uh, but just talk to me a little bit about what you all do. Sure. Um, Clear Brook is a nonprofit organization based in Arlington Heights, and we provide a variety of services to individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Our array of services includes uh, early intervention for, for uh, those that are uh, birth to three years old. Um, we have home-based supports where we provide assistance in the family home to care for an individual. Um, we also uh, serve approximately 400 individuals in residential environments. Um, and we provide support for, for job placement um, as well as um, community day service programming options. Wow, that's quite an array. Is there a, a sweet spot? Is there an age or a service that is maybe more core to what you do? Uh, you know, I would say uh, our residential service. Um, you know, that those are environments where we're caring for an individual uh, 24-7, in some cases with, with nursing um, and more medical support. Um, and then there's an, uh, a service segment called um, SILA, their Community Integrated Living Arrangements, and those are homes that we buy in the community and pair individuals together, and they, they live as a family with, with staff support. 
I have a nephew, uh, or pardon me, well, I have a nephew, but I also have a godson who is living in a in a home like that in Minnesota, and I often wondered if there was something like that in the Chicago area for persons with disabilities. This is such a godsend to families, isn't it? It is, it is. And we, we are a, a large solar provider. We have uh, 58 homes um, throughout the Chicagoland area. And then does an adult caretaker live with them? How do they manage? Uh, you know, we have um, direct support professionals uh, known as DSPs. Uh, they're essentially our, our frontline workers, uh, similar um, in nature to, um, say, a certified nursing assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they do shift work in the homes. But, but by and large, the homes are staffed 24-7. So uh, a caretaker is there through the overnight shift. Um, you know, again, in the morning to assist individuals with what they need to start their day um, and then back again in the afternoon. I know you have a breakfast event with legislators tomorrow, but let's just talk a little bit more about what you do on any given day. Uh, tell me what the disabilities are. We, we serve, um, you know, individuals that um, have a diagnosis of autism, a Down syndrome, a cerebral palsy, uh, you know, a variety of uh, disabilities, those that uh, are ambulatory as well as those that mm-hmm. require more assistance for mobility, such as is a wheelchair um, and, and specialized transportation. Who pays for this? Who pays for these services? About 70% of our funding comes from the government, um, and then we, we rely heavily on donor support to make up the difference so that we can do uh, the additional things for the individuals that we, we support, such as uh, outings into the community, yeah, um, yeah. special events. And so uh, we, we are tremendously grateful for um, the donor support that, that we receive. We have a wonderful network of donors, sure. and, and we couldn't do the work that we do without them. Is it a sort of sliding scale, depending on the family's ability to pay? I, I presume your residents also contribute. Um, by and large, they don't, and, and families um, don't pay directly to Clearbrook. This is, um, you know, government-funded services. Uh, certainly many of our families are also part of our, our donor network, but um, you know, anybody at any income level, um, you know, would be entitled to the services that they need. So what's the breakfast meeting about? What are you going to try? Whose ear are you going to bend and what are you going to ask for? Uh, you know, we've, we, we've got tremendous uh, legislative support for our breakfast. Um, you know, I, I want to mention um, Representative Lindsay LaPointe. She is a big, big supporter of not only Clearbrook, but, but the work that we do um, and other providers as well. Uh, so uh, she'll be there. Um, you know, the the focus of uh, the legislative breakfast is, is not only to um, introduce legislators to Clearbrook and the work that we do, but to also talk about um, a really challenging issue that Clearbrook and um, other providers in the state are, um, you know, uh, trying to work through right now. Um, at the moment, um, the Illinois Department of Human Services and the, the Division of Developmental Disabilities plans to cut two and a half million direct support professional hours out of the uh, SILA environment that we were just, just talking about. Um, 
which is about a 9% cut um, to the funded hours that we had previously had. And it represents um, an $87.7 million, uh, you know, financial reduction to um, the developmental disability service system. Um, that why, is is this, a, why is the state cutting service hours? Um, you know, that's a really great question um, and another area of frustration. And what we want to talk to our legislators about is uh, there was a study done and uh, to kind of look at the way that we're paid and the, the calculation. Um, and we haven't had um, a whole lot of clarity as to uh, kind of the numbers behind this new calculation other than this massive reduction. When uh, the state um, initiated this, uh, prov- the provider agencies were told that it would be a redistribution of hours. So the pie would stay the same. The slices would be cut differently. That is, is not what has happened. There's been a m- proposed significant reduction um, of funded hours, um, which really, um, you know, it, 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 it directly impacts the work that we do and the level of services and the quality of life to those that we're serving. Wow. I just speak for myself. I'm so glad there are people that do what you do, agencies that do this, um, people that donate to this, and hopefully the state will continue to fund this. Uh, Good luck on that breakfast tomorrow and keep us posted on the services you're providing. Jessica Smart, president and CEO at Clearbrook, clearbrook clearbrook.org is the website. Jessica, thanks for your time today. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. You're listening to WGN Radio. And Michael Miller is a frequent guest, the economics professor at Western Washington University. You remember him from his DePaul days, too. He's been a frequent guest, and he joins us again today. Michael, welcome back to the Wintrust Business Lunch. Well, it's great to be with you, John, in the new year. Yeah, I agree. And I wanted to just start with something that you shared with my producer, Pete. You wrote, the media have been reporting on a disconnect between how the public perceives the economy and the statistical data that show the economy to be doing fine. No one is more frustrated by this than Mr. Biden. So let's start there. Um, How good or not good is the economy right now, Mike? Well, you know, if you look at it through the eyes of, say, output, employment, uh, unemployment, and so forth, we have wonderful times. Uh, Gross domestic product, the total output of the economy, is growing. It has not fallen at all after people expected there to be a recession. Not only that, it's growing near what is called its potential, which means it's not growing too slowly that people can't get jobs, and it's not growing so fast that it might create inflation. So GDP is exactly where we want it. When it comes to employment, which people care about, you want to make sure that the economy has the power to create jobs that, are, that is in line with the economy's needs and the demographics, how many people are, are coming up every given month that need a new job. And it turns out that even though the number of jobs per month created has declined uh, as, since Mr. Biden has taken office, it's now very much in line with the demographics of the economy, which means the economy is creating essentially just the right number of jobs to keep people employed and to keep unemployment from rising. Hmm. And then you look at it in terms of unemployment. You, you know, uh, what would be a good number? We've always argued that 
is a really good number. And of course, it's lower than 4%. It's 3.7. So in, in the parlance of economics, we have what would be called full employment. So I could just sit there with, you know, if we were sitting there with Mr. Biden thinking, you look at all this and you say, well, then why are people so angry? And there seems to be two things about it. And the one thing I left off has to do with prices. And those prices affect their incomes. Now, there's no doubt that workers have been getting raises. That's true. But those raises have not gone up as quickly as the price or the cost of living. And that's what people are responding to. Yeah. Uh, it, it just uh, some economists at the Fed try to figure out exactly why. Why is, until just recently, why is uh, consumer confidence so low? Why are people so upset with Mr. Biden? And there's only one, pretty much one explanatory variable, and that is their income just isn't keeping up. It's tougher for them every month to pay their bills. But wages of late have outstripped inflation, right? Uh, they have. But understand that inflation went up a whole lot uh, not that long ago. So what you do is you look at the cumulative effect. Let's say over the past two or three years that wages have gone up 15%. That's really good. But what if prices have gone up 17% in that same period? Then your wages adjusted for inflation have fallen 2%. And so and that's not true for everybody. There, uh, we're getting very close to the point that even over the three-year period of Mr. Biden, that wages uh, will have increased in a real sense, that, that they have gone up faster than inflation. But at the moment, that is not the case. At the moment, we see that, that there's a huge number of workers that, um, where their wages just have not kept up with the inflation. And they go to the store and they, they know that inflation is falling, which you're going to talk about soon called disinflation, but prices still remain high. And when they go to the grocery store or they go to the gas station, they see those high prices and those high prices anger them. And, and that's where this anger against Mr. Biden, yeah. I think, is coming from. I'm not sure. It, 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 this has happened before where there's been a disconnect between the public's perception of the economy and the, the data that economists have. And, but this one is, is more puzzling because inflation hasn't been an issue in the economy in 40 years. Hmm. And that's why this one, you know, we almost have to look at inflation as the problem because it's the most recent problem to really uh, show its ugly face. You said the wages haven't kept up. I wonder if another way to put it would be they haven't caught up. Isn't that uh, 9 9% number from a year ago the... Uh, the uh, uh, what is that? The the the, the rat in the snake's body as it's moving its way yeah. along. Yes. Yeah, it, uh, they have not caught up. Is correct. See, that one of the problems, and, and it, it's a, I don't want to say it's philosophical or, or it's empirical. Uh, some people fear that if workers get raises, this will lead to future inflation. This bothers me because workers do not have the power to raise their wages before the inflation occurs. Workers are always behind the curve. Like you say, it's the rat uh, swallowing, uh, the rat swallowed by the, by the snake. The, the uh, problem exists, and now workers have to respond to this uh, and demand higher wages, for example. Uh, and one other thing is that workers, when they get raises, are not going to cause inflation, especially if the workers are more productive. Mm -hmm. Because if you're producing output, 
yeah. then those extra dollars you're paid, there's something to buy. That that doesn't create inflation. So I think workers oftentimes are are um, they're accused of wanting too much, and this helps uh, foster the inflation. I just think that's fundamentally wrong. But workers are almost always in a catch-up mode, that the prices go up first, and the workers have to respond by insisting from their bosses, you know, you really got to help me out here. I, I can't continue to do this. So I, uh, I think that's what we're facing now. I, I think people... Uh, if you look at the most recent consumer right. confidence, people are becoming more confident. Yeah. The, uh, you know, Mr. Biden, jumped. if the he wanted jumped. to pick. Yeah, they really did. And and it has to do with people having a lower perception with regard to future inflation. And if Mr. Biden uh, could ever in, in, in the past have said, I'll tell you when I want the economy to hit its true stride, it would be, you know, in the next couple of months, because that's what people will remember when they walk into the uh, to the voting booth later this year. And he doesn't want the economy to peak too soon from a political standpoint. <laughs> yeah. I well, mean, really? And but, so if the inflation could go down over the next six months and the rest of the economy remains where it is, he would be going into re-election time with a really, really good economy. Uh, and, and maybe um, uh, but, uh, th- that's not enough. It's also his ability to communicate that, uh, persuade people yeah. that it's his policies, et cetera. Um, right. the, the, and inflation is cumulative, right? So if it's 3% now yeah. and it was 9% a year ago, that's 12. And then it was 4 and 5. So you're looking at like 20 plus percent increase since the pandemic hit. And right. I, I think that's maybe what people are doing. They're saying, well, uh, in 2019, I'll be that five years ago, four years ago. Eggs or gas or snicker bars cost this, and now they cost that much more. And the one thing that I would beg people to do as they gauge the fairness or rightness of inflation is that it's always cumulative. And if it was always 3%, you'd still be 12% higher. So that's right. It's, it's, it's not fair to you as a decider when you go into the voting booth or when you look into your grocery cart uh, or to the administration to say, hey, um, we're up so much when, in fact, you are going to be up a lot anyway. What would the baseline inflation have been over the last four years? Yeah. Well, it would have been two to two and a half percent. And, and, and certainly it wouldn't be where nine t- has taken us. But certainly prices would be higher. It's just that in the past, when uh, when inflation is going up at that that slower pace, that 2%, it just turns out that people don't notice it nearly as much, especially if their wages, you know, they can expect a raise they're going to get on an annual basis. Even if they're catching up, they're essentially catching up and remaining the same. And you don't see these giant jumps in the price no, like we do no, with the 9% no, no. inflation. Okay, but then and that's what hurts people. Talking to economist Mike Miller. With more business news, here's Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute during Chicago's business news of the day. The CEO of United Airlines is frustrated about ongoing manufacturing problems at Boeing. He says the Chicago-based airline will consider alternatives to buying a future larger version of the Boeing 737 MAX. Scott Kirby says Boeing needs real action to restore its previous reputation for quality. United has dozens of Boeing 737 MAX 9 jetliners that have been grounded for nearly three weeks after a panel blew out of an Alaska Airlines MAX 9 in mid-flight. Kirby says this might be the last straw for United and the airline is drawing up plans for growing without a new, larger version of the MAX currently being developed by Boeing.
Boston-based Nexamp, the largest community solar energy provider in the country, has selected Chicago as the site for its second national headquarters. It'll bring more clean energy jobs to the state. Nexamp plans to invest $2 billion in existing and future solar projects in Illinois. It'll also partner with City Colleges of Chicago to develop a fellowship program to create an employment pipeline for students interested in careers in the solar industry. Nexamp has 80 employees in Chicago and plans to add another 50 positions over the next two years. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Trust Business Minute. Okay, Steve Alexander, business of food, please. Thank you, and let's talk food prices. And remember all the ragging we did on eggs when they were so darn high? Check out this number. Egg prices were 23.8% lower in December of 2023 compared to the year before. She will help us understand the difference between disinflation and deflation after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, here's how an economist explained the difference between disinflation and deflation. Imagine you're behind the wheel of a Silverado and cruising down the road and you let off the gas. The truck begins to slow down. In economic terms, that is disinflation. If you stop the Silverado, put it in reverse, and move backwards, that is deflation. And in December, there was some of both in the food category. Here's USDA economist Megan Schweitzer. Food at home prices fell by 0.1% in December, and prices for food at home or for groceries were 1.3% higher than a year ago. Which is an annual inflation rate far below the average yearly rate of about 2.5%. And of the 22 general food categories Megan tracks, we saw price decreases for 12 of them from November to December. Such as pork, which decreased by 1.4% in December. Pork prices were essentially unchanged over the year. And there were a handful of categories where prices were lower in December than they were the year prior. Such as? Fresh vegetable prices were down by 4.8% between December 2022 and December 2023. And back to eggs, even though they were down 24% last month from December of 22. Though we did see a jump in egg prices just in December by 8.9%. That was driven largely by new cases of avian influenza. And so we'll be watching to see how these new cases translate to retail egg prices. Seems like there's always something ready to disrupt the markets. Disease, drought, whatever. From the farm to your belly. Today is National Pie Day. Cherry for me, please. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. To what degree, Michael, do you think, uh, put it this way, how good a job do you think the media is in talking about the economy these days? Um, You know, I'm torn on that. If you look at the uh, business press, uh, Bloomberg, uh, Wall Street Journal, and so forth, I think they do a pretty decent job. But, But that's not where the average public gets their information. And I guess if I if I had a magic one, I were King Mike as opposed to King John. Yeah. Uh, what I would do is I would like the media to treat the public uh, as intelligent, more intelligent than I think they are, and be willing to show them, uh, for the lack of a description, a graph that that shows that yeah, GDP may not be growing really fast, but you know what? This is the speed it should be growing at. This is near potential. It's not that far out of line with what it has been in the recent past. And if you would do this, say, with job creation and and so forth, I think people would have a better sense of it, and then they would come to a conclusion which is more in line with what the data are telling us. Uh, But that also would mean 
that the press has to be completely unbiased. They have to, when things are good, they have to be willing to say they're good. When they're bad, they have to be willing to say they're bad, regardless of who is in, you know, in office or whatever. And, um, but I, I don't, it, it's, it's a tough thing because the public's eyes kind of glaze over as soon as you start talking about numbers yeah. or as soon as you throw up graphs. I, I don't know media the way you know media, but I have been told that that is a death knell of a discussion is if you start throwing graphs, uh, you know, in a presentation, uh, like on, on uh, video or, or uh, radio or television, it's deadly. And um, I can only say that I, I do occasional uh, presentations to professional groups and so forth about the condition of the economy. And people invariably come up to me. I, I use lots of graphs. And they say, boy, I really like the way you showed me that because it, it made much more sense to me to see, you know, the the current data in some kind of historical perspective. And um, I, I think uh, being assuming that the, the reader is intelligent enough to interpret these data, I think would be it would be it would improve uh, the outcome. I think you're coming to the conclusion I have, which is not that the media is biased, but that it's lazy. I think it can be done. Uh, I don't think it's easy to yeah. do. And, and I'll make one more point about this, Michael. I believe that sure. most people in the media are on the liberal side of things. And I think so as they to are. demonstrate their lack of bias. They continue to pump out stories about how bad the economy is. We see grocery carts over and over again, but they don't talk about gas prices because that's good news. They don't talk mm -hmm. about other consumable goods which have gone down in price. I saw a story the other day about the cost of a Snickers bar and how we buy more Snickers bars than we do TV sets. TV sets will cost you $1,000, but they're less expensive relative to the economy than they had been. But Snicker bars have gone up. So we say, oh, 20 more cents on a Snicker bar. Inflation, inflation, inflation. But in fact, it's not that impactful. One last just observation I've seen sure. of late, and then I'll let you comment, and that is that the same story said that less than 10% of a household economy is spent on food. So where's the media reporting about all of that? I, you know, I absolutely agree with you, John. I, I couldn't have said it better than you said it. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to accuse your people of being lazy, but I think the media sometimes is lazy to try to find an effective way to communicate this information. I know it's not easy to do so because you're talking about macroeconomic data, but it can be done. It can be done in a way that is visual where people can learn through their eyes, not just their ears, and, and they can actually then perceive exactly what's happening in the economy. Again, I think it is so important to have some recent historical perspective to get an idea that, oh, things were so much better under, say, the, pre the previous president. Well, let's t actually take a look at the data and see, is that really true? Well, you don't have to purposely try to prove or disprove something. If people have those kinds of data each and every month that they're reported or quarter that they're reported, they'll have that context. And to me, context is absolutely essential in making decisions. One story we didn't talk about, or idea, and I've only got about 60 seconds now, but does sure. government licensing of certain professions have benefits that outweigh the costs? This is something Illinois and Chicagoans deal with, having to get licensed to be a hairdresser or whatever. Right. And does that really pay off in the long run? Just give me a short 
idea about that, sure. Mike? The, the Cliff's notes on this, uh, the Boston Fed uh, looking mainly at the Boston area uh, or that particular region of the economy, um, they wanted to find out two things. Does it help the consumer in protecting them? And does it allow or does it hinder people who want to get into these professions? And they found that the licensing does not really help people if you're dealing with things like a barber or, or a, um, an Uber driver or something like that that could be licensed or controlled. And does it stop people from entering the market? The answer is that it does because of exams, extra education, and simply the price of the license itself yeah. can be for people who are just trying to start out prohibitive. We're not necessarily made better off just because we think we're controlling uh, who gets to cut my hair. Now, I have almost no hair, so it almost doesn't matter. But, <laughs> you know, you, you find out. I, I go to a barber. If the barber cuts it too short or crooked or whatever, I just don't go back. I don't think they have to have a, a restrictive license to be in certain professions. And the Boston yeah. Fed, I'm not sure. I, I think they went in completely... Um, Unbiased. They wanted to find out, does it help? And there's no evidence that licensing a lot at of people, that level. Yeah, yeah, in Chicago and Illinois would say as much. Michael Miller is the oh, economics absolutely. professor at Western Washington University. Let's talk again another day, Michael. Thank you for your thoughts I today. I love the intelligent talk. Talk to you then.